My name is Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the games that matter to them. Today, we have with us Mr. Jason Lutz, who posts as Jason Lutz. Uh, Jason, hello. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, as I was telling you before, I think you are our you are easily the most famous person on the Quarter to Three Games podcast. You are fairly well known for... Uh, so I have a question as a guy who's not into comics at all. <laughs> you have a thing like... Are, do you... Because I think of... When I think of what you do, what little I know about your comics, like I think those are graphic novels. Like I think of comic books as superhero stuff. Do you chafe or bristle when people call them comics? Oh, no, no, no. That's That's the word I use all the time. That's, that's, oh. that's the that's what I call that's the medium. That's what I call the medium. It's just comics. Yeah. So no, I have no hangups about graphic novels versus comics. What but, I do is comics. And and now your work though has nothing to do with superheroes. It's it's uh it's historical stuff. Berlin, of course, is about Berlin, and I guess the is it the 30s and the 40s. Uh, you did something a couple years ago about Houdini. Uh, so your whole shtick is not superheroes. Right. Yeah. I do do fiction too, but it's all um. Uh, I guess, the, yeah, it's like I'm basically a novelist in comic book form, and my novels might be about, you know, they might be historical fiction, like Berlin, the story I'm working on now, or the one I did previously was called Jar of Fools, and that was like uh, totally fictional, um, uh, but but set in modern-day uh, America story mm-hmm. about an unemployed magician. Uh, and I also just want to real quick relay an anecdote. I met you once when you came to L.A. for a signing, you gave me a, one of the – like, Berlin is a multi-volume story. Is that correct? Yeah. So you gave me one of the, the comics of Berlin, and you gave me The Fall, and you did not sign them. <laughs> so Yeah, I forgot. And the store actually got mad at me because they thought that I had given you their copies and you hadn't paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Did I actually rip off No, that no. I brought those copies <laughs> specifically for you, but uh, – but later, like a year later, I ran into the owner of the store to, at the San Diego Comic Con, and he was like, "You owe me money for those books." <laughs> <laughs> it's the lurid backroom world of uh, the comics industry. Yeah. So, did you read it, Tom? Well, I did, and uh, and that's why I the the comics that I know and that I like are things that are definitely not superhero stuff, and so I really respected that about the fall. Berlin, I only had the one volume. So right, I felt right, like right. I was left out of most of what you were doing. But The Fall is this oh, self-contained story I quite enjoyed. Yeah, and it needs to be said that it was written by uh, Ed Brubaker. So I didn't write that one. But it's um, yeah, it's one of my favorite books that I've done. It was really great working with him on that. And now, do you yeah. normally Norm- write the stuff that stuff you also draw? You're not you're just an artist, of course. Yeah, usually I do write and draw my own stuff. That was actually a rare... I think I've only drawn other people's stories like two or three times and that was one of those times i did some stuff for d some like short stuff for dc once upon a time and things here and there but mostly i've been lucky enough to write and draw my own stuff yeah and can you and talk can about you, what you're working on now yeah uh, i'm still working on berlin <laughs> okay so um, berlin is not closed berlin is an ongoing thing it's a trilogy. You got the first volume. It's a um, each volume is about 200 pages, and I basically my biggest problem is it, it doesn't pay the bills, so I've just been able to do it in my spare time. Um, so it's been it's taken me. I'm going on 12 years now working on that book. So that's pretty epic. Sort of what was that? That's pretty epic. Yeah. It is. It is epic. 
Um, it's epic when you consider that uh, the story itself takes place over a span of about four years. <laughs> and here I am, 12 years into it. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm ready to move on to the next thing, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta wrap this one up first. Now, now you live in Vermont, if I'm not mistaken. You you moved there from Seattle. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, I have this image of you as living in this idyllic farmhouse in Vermont, Vermont, and your publisher and your constantly Vermont calling you saying, "Where's the next volume for Lynn? <laughs> uh, that's accurate, except for the publisher constantly calling me. <laughs> I do live in a. I were renting, but it's a beautiful little. It's kind of when I pictured moving to Vermont, I had this kind of postcard image of what it would be like, and and that's pretty much where we live. <laughs> we got a swimming pond down. You know, just it, we had our first big snow a couple days ago, so right now everything's you know beautiful and blanketed and white. And there was a like a wassail parade downtown today with like horses with jingle bells on, and um, yeah, it's pretty sickening how uh, quaint it is up here. Uh, and you uh, have a child on the way. Yeah, I do. We have a we have a three year old, three and a half year old daughter. Um, and any day now, any minute now, perhaps interrupting this podcast, we will uh, we'll drop another one. And do you know and if you it's know a boy or girl? Or girl? Do not. Okay. okay. I'm getting a little okay. feedback. I don't know if I think I'm coming I'm through on the speaker. Uh, uh, oh, might turn your volume. Oh, turn volume down. Okay. Let's see if I can. I'm using my girlfriend's Mac here. Oh, you're on a Mac. Oh, that's yeah. Good. Uh, that that's better though. By the way. So uh, you don't know if it's a boy or girl. Uh, you're intentionally wanting the surprise. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we uh, yeah that, yeah we we just want to be surprised. We were surprised the first time, and um, it worked out great. So why not? <laughs> does your daughter wonder if she's getting a brother or sister? You, we she said, must. Um, she does, we we said we don't know, and she says, well, first she named it Pep. <laughs> like P-E-P? <laughs> yeah, Pep. So she calls it Pep, and then and she always refers to the baby as he or she. So she'll say, when Pep comes, he or she will need his or her diaper changed. <laughs> so every time she uses a, a pronoun, it's, she, she makes sure to cover all the bases. Uh, and you uh, mentioned to me that you teach as well. Yeah, I teach at um, what I like to think is the premier comic book school in America, which is this place called the uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies in, in um, uh, White River Junction, Vermont. It's a little school that started up about five years ago. It's a two-year um program and people come here from all over the place to learn how to write and draw comics and it's a it's a lot of fun i've been doing it for three years so far Mm -hmm. uh Uh, so today today, i want to talk to you or actually you chose uh generally solium infernum or uh, armageddon empires or actually specifically to start with those two but generally to move into the idea of narratives in strategy games yeah so the first question i have for you why use Solium Infernum and Armageddon Empires as a jumping-off point? Um, I think well, when when you were when you posted and, and we're looking for people to talk, um, you know, Solium Infernum hadn't even actually been released yet. I think you probably had you and Troy and those guys had, had advanced copies, but the rest of the general public didn't have anything yet. But I kind of was counting on it being good, <laughs> um, and counting on it to be uh, to, to be able to generate a lot of interest in conversation so i just said hey why don't we talk about that it'll be out by then i know where i will have played it and i and i can pretty much count on liking it um which is not something i usually do with games that haven't been released yet but uh turned out that that was that was pretty accurate i ended up liking it a lot and um and i also knew a little bit about um just from reading uh vic's blog i had some sense of the kind of game it was going to be and that it was going to have a similar kind of uh uh narrative 
uh, scope or possibility as Armageddon Empires did, um, Vic's first game. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought that regardless of how that how it turned out, it might be worth you know starting the discussion on that. Vic's blog was really exciting to read, wasn't it? Like as he would reveal tidbits of what his influences were and some of the game mechanics. I mean, that's yeah, it's totally great. I mean, it was just like. Um, the, the great thing about it, he's just he's just one guy except for all the you know he gets all the artists to contribute lots of great art and um, but in terms of the writing and the mechanics and all that he's just coming up with it completely himself and it's so great to read yeah the thought process and the the points of inspiration that he that he took and put in the game together especially like I guess it's just that one line from was it from Paradise Lost that one line that he found inspirational. The uh, better to or the uh, better terrain thing, that thing that. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. just love that. You know, like that's like, uh, you know, I don't want to get high fluted, but that's like an artist talking. You know, I heard this one line and it inspired me to create an entire strategy game. <laughs> well, no, I mean you're you're right. You don't generally most video games are so corporate team based and they come from this sort of cultural diet that's basically low rent Tolkien or Sid Mead production design from Aliens right. or Blade Runner. So to have some guy say, you know, this line in Milton, I mean, yeah, that's that's heady stuff. I love hearing that. Uh, now, I'm, so, always, I'm totally fascinated with people's uh, creative processes, however they end up at, you know, whenever I encounter a finished product, whether it's a comic book or a video game or, or a novel or a film, I'm always, um, part of me is always fascinated with the, the kind of sequence of events or the process that led to that. So that was another, I mean, blogs in general are interesting in, in that way, the way they document people's kind of day-to-day thoughts around stuff. And VIX was especially great because there was you get these really big chunks of of stuff. Um, and he clearly really enjoyed what he was, like, engaged with. So that's right. always great, too. So, you would obviously, so you'd obviously been a fan of Armageddon Empires. Uh, tell me how you came to that and, and what the process was like discovering that. What, what grabbed you about Armageddon Empires and how did you find it? I, I'm pretty sure that he posts on the... On the board about it. Um, I mean, Vic's been a member of Quarter of the Three for a while. I, I think he might have gone under a different name before, before he switched it to Vic Davis, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but anyway, I, so he posted or somebody else posted about it on the board, and um, I went to the website, and you know, all of the like whatever the bullet points were totally like, you know, this sounds great, and it's an indie developer, and you know, I'm all for shelling out whatever it was. Was it like thirty bucks or something? Um, I think so. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, always, I'm I'm sort of more willing to take my chance with my money on somebody who's clearly got a passion, even if the thing turns out to be a mess. Um, I'm I'm just really interested. I'm not in it necessarily for the like, this better be a good game or I want my money back. It's more like I'm 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 far more interested in an interesting, uh, risk taking failure than I am in like a totally polished, by the book, um, you know, formulaic game. Um, so I thought it sounded great. Um, I had actually been working on a board game of my own that had a really similar theme to it, um, kind of competing factions in a post-apocalyptic world. And uh, and there was I think I saw some glimpses of the card art, and I thought, oh, this sounds really cool. And plus, I love board games um, implemented on the on the PC. Like I, whenever whenever I have like a craving for that for that treat for that strategic decision making, you know, that kind of like. Um, those, that series of, of important decisions that, that really good strategy games makes strategy games make you um, go through. Um, the board game experience is always one that kind of easily kind of I get the the, the kind of 
impulse to play something like that. And it seemed like it fit that bill. And it did. It totally does. It's a board game. Um, all, you know, a board game that would be really kind of tedious and take a long time to play on an actual tabletop because of all the calculations and stuff you'd have to do. But, um, but on the, on the computer, it's just a great, a great way to do it. And, uh, so I bought it and I played it and loved it. And, um, you know, once you get over, as everybody knows, the interface issues were <laughs> something to kind of uh, wrestle with for a while. And it was just great to see Vic be so responsive to people's, to people's feedback about that. Um, like, remember the whole dice rolling thing? Well, I got to say, Jason, I got so lucky with Armageddon Empires in that I came to it maybe, I think it was fairly late in the process. But when I actually started playing in earnest, people had already been griping about something. <laughs> things. So Vic had done a great job tidying it up. And as I was playing it, I was thinking, what's wrong with these people? This is really fluid and smooth, and it works fine. And looking <laughs> back, I was like, uh, plenty of people had sort of blazed the trail before me, and uh, yeah. Vic had tidied that up. So I didn't have the interface pain that some of you early adopters had. But what I also loved about the interface pain was that like, when the conversation started, and people were like, I can't believe it takes so long to roll these goddamn virtual dice. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I have to wait. It's like real life where I'm waiting for dice to roll. But the great <laughs> thing was that Vic, not only was he – you know, right there, ready to like do what he could to to speed things up and accommodate people's wishes that way. But he said, like, oh, I was kind of like that. <laughs> you know, like his he's wearing his like his kind of board gamers badge on his sleeve there, and and kind of admitting or like arranging the cards in Solomon Infernum, the way that you mentioned how you kind of ended up liking, right. or at least talked yourself into liking the fact that you had to arrange them manually. Um, on your little virtual card space there. Um, but I just love that Vic, you know, that that aspect of, of Vic came through in that little conversation on the on the board about how, like, well, I kind of, I like watching the dice roll. Right, right. <laughs> like, I do kind of miss... He knows the number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he knows all the numbers, but you got to, you know, watching those dice roll, there's a certain kind of satisfaction that comes... And I kind of miss that in Solium Inferno. I mean, there's die rolls in, in the game, but they're all yeah. in the background. You don't get to see them. You can see them when you look at the combat, but... I, I really enjoyed that. Vic does a great job of straddling the difference between board gaming and computer gaming and bringing in the best of both of them. And I miss some of the board gaming conventions that he understandably decided to streamline out of Solium Infernum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, on, on the other hand, though, it, well, no, I guess I was gonna I was gonna say that the way that the map works with these really distinct kind of playing pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which I love, like Ben Sones's map and um, yes. Uh, icon work is really beautiful You're and really so awesome. like uh unique you know like i can't there's not another game i can think of that has like a style like that that actually took inspiration from like medieval paintings and bruegel and stuff like that um, yeah and it's like vic with his uh milton quote you know ben has said he was drawing from those gustave doré wood cuttings and and hieronymus bosch paintings and that's that's yeah. such that's so refreshing to see that in a video game Right, absolutely. Yeah, completely refreshing. And um, that, that's one aspect that still really feels like a board game. It really feels like, I mean, you, you do this, he does this great thing where you, on, a, on a board game on a tabletop, it's a little hard to have the wraparound world. I mean, you can do it, but not as you know elegantly as it is on a computer screen. Um, but it really, you know, it's it's very much a, a board. It's got the, those those little pieces that represent your legions look like they're identical, and they're like little playing pieces, little pawns that you move around. The only thing it's lacking is the ability to kind of click and drag, you know, pick one up and drop it somewhere. Um, that's where the board game feel really kind of, and plus the card, the card space where you arrange your cards, that feels um, a little board gamey. But yeah, mostly he streamlined out a lot of that stuff. 
And most, yeah, for the better, I would think. But you do miss a little bit of that tactility that you. Well, that one was enjoyable. one thing that I uh, came to understand about Solium Infernum is that missing a lot of the die rolls aren't Vic necessarily wanting to streamline the game, as he's defending an important design decision, namely that the bonuses you get for certain rolls are a secret. Uh, it's a huge part <laughs> of the game whether or not you know what what your Archfiend build is and what you put your points into. And if you see the die rolls and see the bonuses you get, you know what kind of Archfiend you're dealing with. So, oh, yeah, right, right. So a lot of the, because there's a whole separate sub-game with dealing with the Fog of War and using prophecy rituals to suss out what the other Archfiends are. Uh, so, I, I mean, I just, every time there's something about the game that I'm inclined to write a little gripe about, oh, I don't like what this is. You know, it's sort of like eight times out of ten with Vic Davis. It's there's a good reason for it that I just don't understand yet. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, have you played a lot of Solium Infernum multiplayer? Because I've noticed your name is conspicuously absent from all these play by email games that we're running. I'm in one right now. Okay. Um, my main problem is is time constraint, right. and also I don't want to get in a bunch of PBM games that are I'm gonna have to drop when the baby comes. So. <laughs> ah, good point. Right. Right. So uh, I have not, um, I have not had, I've you know I've played a fair number of single player single player games, but that's obviously not where the game really shines. Um, so I'm not um, thoroughly experienced with the multiplayer aspect of it. And also, I kind of suck. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> it, you know, I, I played in probably I probably played like a dozen or two dozen Dominion's games, and without without exception, lost every single one. <laughs> with that, you know, didn't even come close to winning. Like when it comes to these games that in, it require you to kind of. To crunch a lot of information and process it, and um, I mean, I, you know, the number of times that Bruce Garrick wiped the floor with me in Dominions is not even. Funny, <laughs> well, but I guess you're used to that. <laughs> well, there, I, I'm very aware that there's a completely different thing. Admiring a game is one thing, and being good at it is something completely different. There are yeah, many games that I admire, that I adore the design, and I can't play to save my life. Yeah, yeah, I totally, yeah, I feel the same way. So. The only strategy game I'm really good at multiplayer is um, Company of Heroes. It's the only one, for some reason, it's just the one I've gotten to be decent at. It's like a hardcore RTS, too. Yeah, and I don't like RTS, but that one, that one's always stuck with me. Well, what drives um, you, then, to get into strategy games? So what you were curious to talk about today <coughs> is emergent narrative, narrative, which I, I want to sort of define that in a minute. But, but first tell me, what draws you to a strategy game? Um, it, is, it is like this kind of... I'm always looking for that sweet spot between abstract and representational. Like, I don't want a simulation. You know, a lot of the old, like, hardcore war games don't really interest me because they're so dry, and a lot of something as abstract as chess totally leaves me cold. So I want something that... I'm always looking for something that kind of hits that that, that kind of sweet spot, right, between... Um, you know, it's abstract enough where for every move or, or choice you make is a really discreet action that has kind of impact... Um, so it's not incremental, but it's actually a decision that really um, uh, has important repercussions um, and is um, it has enough kind of grounding in uh, narrative space or, or 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 theme that I feel like all of my actions have some kind of um, narrative context, you know. Um, so um, I was just thinking about. Like like Armageddon Empires and Solium Infernum are examples of that totally do that. They basically take the board game approach to what could be very, you know, complex subject matter. 
um, and reduce it to a series of, you know, um, the card play in Armageddon Empires, you know, every character is a card, a lot of actions are cards, um, you build your you build your deck out of cards, and then when you put them on the map and you start to interact with the other players, the other AI players, um, you know, a story unfolds from that from that interaction. Um, and in Solomon Infernum, um, I think that's more because of the multiplayer aspect. Then the, the story can be even more interesting and um, dramatic because you can have like kind of a meta game going on where people are all communicating with one another. So and, those two games specifically, I think, do do kind of hit that sweet spot pretty well between those two, between the abstract and the, the more simulation end of things. As a quick aside, Jason, I think one of the benefits of you not playing a lot of play-by-email games, uh, I'm in maybe uh, eight, ten play-by-email games right now. Having so many going at once robs them of their sort of narrative importance. Like each one is divided. It's a, it's a series of moves I make every day, and I lose track of which game is which moves. Uh, yeah, I could totally see that. I could totally see that. Um, I have the same problem. Um, I guess I had a little bit with Dominions, but with Dominions... The maps were at least distinct enough to give you some sense of a clear visual sense of context every time you open up the game. Right, but with right. with Solomon Infernum, because it's tile based and 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 they're you know one of the great strengths of the graphics, like we talked about, is that there's this kind of subdued quality to them, like the the the, the range of the palette of colors that Ben used. It gives it all this subdued quality. But if you're playing multiple games, then I think that we could probably end up looking a lot alike. And and to make matters worse, I'm playing the same. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm playing the same Archfiend in almost all of my games. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna test this build relentlessly, and so and it's a terrible. Are you keeping notes, or how do you how are you keeping how are you? I don't because uh, it's and I've kind of missed that boat. Uh, I sit down and I look over the turn orders. I uh, sort of look at the board. I get a little confused. <laughs> it's every turn is kind of having to rediscover what's going on. Uh, I'm definitely doing it the wrong way. <laughs> That's what I've uh, so one of I recall you and I, I believe, I, I hope I'm not mistaking you as someone else, but Kevin Perry made a game called Shadow Watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you and I were huge fans of that, weren't we? Oh, yeah, definitely. And Shadow Watch had that same thing where there were discrete pieces that made each decision important, and they had enough flavor that there was a, was a strong sense of narrative around yeah, yeah. I mean, helped helped by that there were like a handful. No, I shouldn't say handful. There was actually quite a large number, but there were specific uh, sort of narrative set pieces that you would have to go through. Um, but but they could be strung together in any in any kind of order. So every time you played the game, depending on your dialogue responses, you could you could follow a different branch of the of the tree. So let, let's define real quick uh, emergent narrative. And and also, I'm still getting a little feedback. I don't know if it's oh, a brilliant situation. Uh, so, so define emergent narrative. So, emergent. How would you describe to someone? Because that's kind of a highfalutin game design. Yeah. Uh, how would you explain what emergent properties are, or what the term emergent means? Well, when I, I actually kind of, you know, emergent gameplay. I guess that term has been around for a while, and um, in the course of teaching comics. Um, and thinking about ways to get people to come up with stories, people who were sort of stumped, um, I sort of came up with the term emergent narrative and then went on the Internet and found out that a lot of people have already been talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure how my personal definition stacks up against what the um, what the academics uh, say about it. But for me, it's when um, there is like a, a, 
a catalyst or a um, or or multiple catalysts that um, they trigger something um, in you, the 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 game, the the player or the reader or whatever that makes you. So if if I have like let's say there's um, well a comics is a great example. Let's say I have a panel and there's a picture. It's just a picture of um, a knife. Okay. And then I have a panel next to that, and the next panel you read is just a picture of a fingerprint. And then you, as the reader, start you just immediately make connections between those two images. Um, and um, you know the most obvious one being there's like a fingerprint on the knife, and then that implies well, you know, evidence did somebody get killed? There's like a whole potential story there just from these two images. So for me, emergent narrative is 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 almost like uh, like if I give you a, a milestone. And then far in the distance, there's this other milestone you're working towards. How you get from the first one to the next one, that's the story that is told between those two points is the story that emerges from your journey mm-hmm. um, and the decisions you make along that journey. Um, in a game, in a strategy game, um, the narrative emerges from every decision. You know, am I going to... Am I going to be diplomatic with Japan or am I going to invade... Um, you know that that decision will take the story in two different directions depending on what on which one you choose and uh, it emerges for me the emerging part is that it's like here's the here's the playing field here's the stage here are the the um, the points of, of of contact or the points of uh, of uh, what's the word like uh, inspiration I don't know. It's all kind of muddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are these there are these points, and they provoke responses, and then the the, the responses that you have um, create the story. It's very okay. for me. It's very much about the 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 participant, the reader, or the player, uh, actively, either consciously or unconsciously, actually stringing things together into a narrative as they as they make their decisions through the game. And that's, yeah, like one of the properties I think of when people talk about emergent things is that the, the person offering the, the tools or the, the pictures, like you're talking about the fingerprint and the knife, uh, don't, don't shove onto the player or the listener or the reader any conclusions. They allow yeah, those great. to unfold naturally in the, the player or the reader. Uh, right. So, um, and, and it is a continuum. You can have, you know, on the one end of the, of the spectrum, you can have somebody who really kind of whatever – provocations they gave you were were kind of pointing in a particular direction you know to create a certain kind of dramatic feeling and then on the other hand you'd have yeah something much more um neutral and um kind of unbiased in what it was the the choice that it was presenting you so the way that i i think for me one of my first encounters with narrative gameplay uh wasn't in the game i was playing it was in the game i was previewing way back when talking to a fellow named seamus blackley who was making a dinosaur fighting game called Trespasser. Uh, <laughs> Trespasser turned out to be a huge boondoggle. It was awful. But I remember going to see... Uh, and they didn't have a build of the game. It was mainly me going to interview Seamus. And he explained to me, and I think this is bull, but it, it's a great illustration to me of what emergent gameplay is and how it works. He explained to me that they were testing the game and that someone was standing on a barrel that had turned on its side. Like it was rolling, it was on the round part. They were standing on the barrel, and they wanted to move forward. However, because of the way the game systems came together, they moved backwards, like you're walking <laughs> on the barrel, and you're forcing it to turn, and it moves you backwards. And that, that was an emergent property, one that the designers didn't intend to be in the game, 
Ah. But the, the way that the systems conspired, the way they worked together, it created something new and unexpected. Uh, so I think of that for gameplay. Now, when we talk about narrative, and I'm real glad you want to talk about this, Jason, because to me, narrative is the most exciting part of video games these days. I love yeah. what the best video games are doing. Uh, when we talk about narrative, I think of, you mentioned, you know, do you attack Japan or do you attack Germany? You know, in a strategy game, offering these kinds, you know, strategy games to me aren't about the numbers so much as the narrative. In Civilization IV, I'm telling my own story. And when a game designer doesn't dump that story in my lap, they give me tools and let me make my own story. That, to me, is an exciting instance of emergent narrative. Uh, and I, I think of, I, I can't think of a better game that does it than Civilization Four because of the granularity of the of the decisions and the openness of the systems. Um, yeah, no, I, that that's a great that's a great description of it. That's pretty much yeah, that's pretty much how I feel about it too. I'll give you another great game though that takes a slightly different approach would be XCOM. Ah, uh, which um, it doesn't have. The thing about Civ Four is you get the feeling that you're on um, given an AI that doesn't have any. Um, bonuses or whatever, you're, you're sort of given the feeling you're on an even playing field with uh, every other opponent. Um, and the great thing about XCOM is that you get the way that it's, the way that it works is you get the feeling that the, that, that the aliens are out there planning, <laughs> but you have no idea like what kind of algorithm is driving their, their, um, the, the, the events that occur, you know, when a UFO appears in the North Pole or when they manage to get a base built in Antarctica or whatever, you're not really sure um, how those things happen, but they happen different every single time you play and you have to figure out how to respond to them. Um, and every every choice that you make from, um, you know, which... Yeah, uh, the, great, the great thing about XCOM is you're making the larger, the large-scale strategic decisions about where to build your bases and, um, and which alien... Uh, you know where to where to um, to target the the crash sites and all that stuff, um, and then you get to actually go into that tactical level, and then there's a series of decisions you have to make there, all of which will add up to. And you were talking, I think, on um, three moves ahead a couple of weeks ago about all the different. I can think it was the Master of Orion epic fail thing. Right. All the different systems have to they, right. they interact and, and affect each other. Um, and as soon as you lose sight of that, the whole thing kind of falls apart. But one of the great things about XCOM or Civ 4 is that every single system in place there does affect the other systems. And enough of that, um, you get a little bit of that. With XCOM, you can get a little bit of that um, barrel rolling forward or back because you can do things. They give you such a, you know, the destructible environments and yes. the, um, the way that you can, when you're given the map of your base, you can figure out, you know, how, what's the best way to organize this? And then as soon as you get your first base invasion, you think, well, that was a lousy way to organize <laughs> <laughs> And you have to actually take those things into account and work with, they give you the tool set, and then you have to to figure out, you know, how to best use it to your advantage. Um, the other thing, it made me think of actually when you interviewed Gordon about the Ultima, when he did that thing with him and his brother did that thing with the treasure chests. Yep. Where they lured the monsters out and created the road between the two cities. Um, you know, not something that uh, Richard Garriott <laughs> necessarily anticipated, but a great example of how you could take that those tools and start to do things with them. And I wanted to uh, you 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 just brought this to mind too. One of the beautiful things about XCOM was their emphasis on narrative. I, I think of great storytelling, uh, whether it's a, a movie or a comic book uh, or even a good TV show, as this this movement 
on the point of the reader or the viewer between going from point A to point B, moving from ignorance to wisdom. There are things you don't know, and you learn those things. You know, who is this character? What is his relationship with this woman? Why is he going to make this choice? You know, what choice is he going to make? Uh, And it's all about going from ignorance to wisdom. You learn things that you didn't know. And the way the uh, UFOpedia worked in XCOM was this brilliant illustration of this is you would encounter creatures and tools and weapons and you would fill in an encyclopedia. You would learn things through research. Uh, It it very clearly illustrated this movement from ignorance to wisdom that I think any classic narrative has. Uh, So I I love that bit. And and there's even once you've lost the innocence of that, once you've played through XCOM once, uh, going through and unfolding that in different ways, it's like watching a great movie a second time. (laughs) <laughs> you know what's going to happen, but you watch it with a different eye and an appreciation, a different appreciation for detail. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Had that in spades. Um, yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to describe that. Um, and I have that, you know, often with a game, I'll actually that movement from innocence to wisdom will be on, on, you know, once I a strategy game, if I play it, and then I, as soon as I get it, you know, as soon as I grok it, and like. Um, see how all the pieces fit together and think, oh, well, that's how that works and I can win doing this. Okay, I don't want to play anymore. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, once that, that, that experience of the unfolding mystery of the game, once I see the man behind the curtain in a lot of games, I will just be totally uninterested. And what I find is the ones I do keep going back to are the ones where it's not just this collection of mechanics that end up to like, you know, how to win or lose or how does this or that work. It's games like Civ 4 or XCOM um, or Solomon Infernum where, where, you know, you can figure out how all those pieces fit together, but the ways that they fit together each and every time you play it can be different, partly due to things like, you know, a random map generator or, you know, in XCOM, the aliens, you know, invade in different places at different times. You end up with different kinds of, um, you know, different countries of the world will be on your side or not like the, the narrative itself unfolds in a different way every time um, and with XCOM that that stuff that was going on under the under the hood because that those aliens were not an equal player they weren't on the same they didn't they weren't standing on the same footing as I was that that could keep me coming back you know yeah. I mean I could get how things worked I could get what I needed to do to research you know the plasma blaster or whatever but the situations that would occur in a given um in a given game, we're so subject to variation that, that you know, I was always interested in seeing what would happen next. Did you by any chance see uh, Derek Paxton's Fall from Heaven, the, the mod for... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's another example of so many different systems and pieces and the thrill of discovering those and, and narrative. I mean, it's just that straight out, he gives you these tools and these creatures and these items and these randomly generated maps... And you create your own narrative. I mean, it's just yeah. that, that was a brilliant bit of clever, smart work. Yeah, it's great. And and one of the things I love about that one, because it is so dense with detail, is that I could end up, you know, usually when I'm playing a strategy game, I think, well, what's my win condition? How am I going to get there? What's the most efficient way? I'm not very good at this, but I know this is how you're supposed to play strategy games. <laughs> what is the most efficient way I can make use of these systems to achieve goal A? Um, and the great thing about a game like Fall from Heaven is that um, things are so complicated that I almost I almost had to sort of just forget about the win conditions and think about whatever race I happen to be playing. I always play these games. I always choose random race. So whenever I play Civ or whatever, uh-huh. I just go random. And then just try to – the great thing about Fall from Heaven is you end up essentially 
or, or the thing I really enjoyed about it was essentially role playing. Like I'd be like, yeah. okay, I'm the, I'm the, the Leosofar, or however you say that elf, the elf race. Here I am. There's wood, you know, what, what would I do? <laughs> I'm an elf race. And what would I do? Not, not how do I win? <laughs> right. But what do I do? What are my concerns? Do I need, you know, oh, there's a magic node. You know, like if I get two nature nodes, what, what will that give me? You know, like I end up thinking about it more as like, um, like inhabiting as much as, as you can in a game like this, the, the role of the, the monarch of that culture, and then trying to make decisions that will help my people as opposed to I better kill that, kill my neighbor as soon as possible. It does almost play more like a city builder. Like you, you, you really want to create this distinctive flourishing culture and society and this whole world conquest stuff that can kind of wait and sit in the background. And I love how he brings that to your front door, by the way. You're going to get confronted with that as that oh, yeah, right. stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's just, sort of like yeah. a city builder, and it's almost like Derek knows you're going to play it that way, but he's not going to let you just sit back and, and turtle. You know, he's going to he's going to force you to contend with a little adversity at some point. Which is that's and that's kind of great because it almost brings up this kind of moral question. You know, I mean, like when, as soon as the the demons arrive, <laughs> you know, you you could if you're in the right part of the map, you could just kind of sit there and turtle and go for your whatever victory. Like you know, there's other ways to win, but um, but. As soon as they start rampaging around, there's definitely the, the feeling of like, well, I should go extinguish those guys. And and I, what I love about that is as as a recent convert, I I didn't really take to this as a as a child, but as a recent convert to Lord, the Lord of the Rings, that whole <laughs> theme of when things go wrong in the world, you have an obligation. You know, you yeah. have to live up to your responsibility, no matter how small or insignificant you may feel. I love how Fall from Heaven is this gameplay expression of that theme. Uh, I mean, if you're playing evil, you can destroy the world, and that's fine, and that's one thing. But there's definitely this gameplay expression of the themes of Lord of the Rings and Fall from Heaven that I, I really respond to. Uh, yeah, and depending, like, depending on which race you end up playing, your your, your response to that, that question when it arises can totally vary. And if I'm doing the role-playing thing, you know... Yeah, if I'm playing one of the one of the neutral races or one of the races, the more pragmatic races, then I'll just try to say like, well, I can use these guys to my advantage, or I'll just try to survive and get by. But if I'm playing a good race, my tendency will be like, no, I've got to kill the demons. <laughs> it's my duty. Now, uh, you, I, I want to sidetrack real briefly. Uh, you uh, also on are probably the most famous person on Quarter to Three because you have been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal in a little video blur. <laughs> Come on. You're more famous than me. Gary Witt is more famous than me. <laughs> uh, Gary Witt, I think when his movie comes out, maybe then he can make that claim. Right now, he's on posters. And I'm definitely not – I mean, I just – I sat in front of a camera and said a few stupid lines. I never created something like you and Gary did. So Come you on, guys get awesome way boyfriend. more credit. Yeah, that, that was great. I, I had to memorize like four lines and then show up and work a day. That was <laughs> – uh, so you, by the way, though, sat on camera or stood on camera – I have to admire this, and flipped through your copy of the Monster Manual from Dungeons & Dragons on camera for the Wall Street Journal. That right there is serious, unabashed nerd cred. <laughs> you whipped that out. So what I'm curious about, Jason, when we're talking about narrative and about emergent properties, you know, narratives where we get the tools and we create our own narratives, how do you respond as a gamer to things like Dragon Age, where... You make choices, but it's not really emergent so much as it's kind of a tree of very meticulously written stories. Uh, does that stuff work for you? Yeah, you know, when it's done well enough, and, and Dragon Age, I think, is phenomenal, um, it does work for me. I, it's, it's like, uh, 
you know, sometimes I'm in the mood to read a book. You know, yeah. sometimes a book a book is a linear, generally speaking, a linear narrative that the author has designed to create a certain effect or or, or effect within a within a range anyway. Um, and Dragon Age um, takes sort of the best elements of of uh, satisfying gameplay mechanics. You know, one of my favorite my favorite games of all time have that the tactic the tactical battle thing, you know, I just love that. I can't get enough of tactical battles, you know, it's that XCOM thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. XCOM or, um, any kind of party based, especially if it's turn based, you know, most of the real time ones I haven't, I think freedom force was the first game that showed me that you could have like a satisfying real time Mm -hmm. slash possible, um, tactical combat. But, um, yeah, dragon age totally, Works because even for me, because even though you do do definitely eventually realize that it is just a, another decision tree that you're, or not even a decision tree, but like a, it's like a, it's like a, uh, you know, there are these narrow kind of bottlenecks that open up a little bit and then they close down again. You have to do the same series of events to get to the end of the story and stuff. Um, but the way that they do it is just, you know, they they dramatize it really well. Um, each individual, whatever little kind of sub story within the main story the way it plays out um <clears throat> here's a, here's a nerdy thing for you when i, I did the werewolf thing right the, the werewolf sub story um, werewolves versus elves right right yeah and i i uh got to the end and you know you have to make those decisions about who you're going to side with and stuff and then the werewolves there's the part where the i can't remember the name of the kind of the the matriarch of the werewolves or the kind of spirit that they all revere i can't right. remember her name but there's a point at which they basically have to say goodbye to her and they all kind of like reach out and, and like touch her or something to say goodbye to her. And I got a little teary. <laughs> I, I, I'm not surprised at that at all, Jason. I mean, you, <laughs> I, I, was, but I was genuinely surprised. I was totally taken aback because, because I don't think an, ever in a, in a PC RPG have I ever felt any kind of emotion other than, um, yeah, or, or I've always been sort of reserved and distant enough to like just hold oh. it at, you know, arm's length. So um, it's uh, there was something in Dragon Age specifically that that you responded to that that created this emotional reaction in you. Yeah, I was actually like genuinely moved by, and I mean, you, if you'd asked me if I could ever be moved by any kind of like, I mean, you know, The Lord of the Rings when I I read it out loud with my girlfriend, we read it out loud to each other like the year before the movies came out, and it was really mo- it was amazing to read it that way because it was it was very it's a very uh, it's almost written to be read, you know, it's that kind of language. Um, and it was a very affecting experience. But if you'd asked me if a video game, a fantasy RPG could ever make me uh, feel engaged emotionally, I would have like, you know, you know, scoffed. But I was, so I was totally surprised. I got completely engaged, engrossed in that narrative. And then that point came and there was this little bit of like digital acting, you know, where the, the 3D modeler says, "Okay," and then the werewolves move their <laughs> move their arms to X coordinates, and the music fades back, and the lines are spoken, and we get this emotional kind of culmin- this this culmination of the little storyline you've been following, and it was totally great. And, and it um, was just that subplot. Like, had, but have you gotten all the way to the end of the game, or are you? Still- no, no, no. I, with, because of my time, I've only gotten I've done Redcliffe and that, and um, I'm right now. I got the whatever the Holy Grail, whatever that thing is, the tears. The ashes of ashes. The ashes. Yeah, right. I got that, and uh, right now I'm in the um, the dwarves, the dwarf. dwarf so I'll be curious what you think. I'm, I'm I don't know. Like the, I enjoyed I, that one, but it was the dwarven quest that really 
I wouldn't say moved me, uh, but that I responded to most. I, okay. I'm surprised to hear you say that too, Jason, because I get so a well-written video game. I, I really respond to. I get affected by. Uh, they tend to be the weirder ones. It's not the ones that are openly manipulative. Uh, but things like Flower, I definitely tear up at stuff like that. And even, <laughs> here's a confession for you, uh, the last Ratchet and Clank. Uh, you know, this is a platforming series and it's about two characters. And normally these things have been so clumsily written. They're, they're, they're for the most part just juvenile and unfunny. And I love the gameplay, but the stories tend to be so stupid. The last Ratchet and Clank, um, had these really touching, moving storylines about uh, fatherhood, uh, about your, your roots, where you come from, and about separation. And I, I, I was just so surprised that I responded to that. Uh, it, it's kind of weird, like when we respond to certain things and what touches us. And I, I don't, I don't know if that says more about me or about Ratchet. Right. Um, but anyway, I think so we're just a couple of pansies. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. I definitely admit to that. Yeah, I'm a huge pushover. Uh, so you're you're in for some really cool stuff with the dwarven storyline, I, I think. Uh, Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. But I can just gotta figure out how to get to those goddamn underroads. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's an example of how the emergent narrative, my desire for something like that like like i i just want to i found that the, the way to get down to the under roads or whatever they're called mm -hmm, right but now i guess apparently now i have to go through the whole decide on the king thing like decide who to ally with because i can't find a way to just get past the guards and go into the under roads i'd rather like skip the whole political stuff for now nope you have and, to play now you have to play the game jason called guess what the designer wants you to do Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's the first point of frustration I've experienced in Dragon Age. Um, yeah. Up until this, I've been totally, it's just been like one big, fun, groovy ride, you know? I've been totally into it. Um, so I actually put it aside for a little bit and started, um, well, Solium Infernum came out, and uh, so that's mainly what I've been doing. Now, have you read in Solium Infernum, uh, I have, I, I kind of felt this way about Dragon Age, too. So a lot of games put in flavor text, and most of the time I skip the flavor text because... Yeah. Uh, I think of Oblivion. You know, Oblivion had a lot of books you could find and read, and there were these clots of text that every now and then I would read and kind of shrug and <laughs> wouldn't move me. So in in Dragon Age, I've, there's some great writing there in their codex, but also in Oblivion, the flavor text stuff that I don't know if Vic invents some of this or if it's actually from classical sources, uh, but there's some great flavor text in Oblivion on some of the cards and the artifacts and for the legions and whatnot. Uh, so I, yeah, so I, the nice thing about it is it's just a little, it's, a, it's like a little couple sentences. You don't have to, you know, it's not like a big, you can just sort of absorb it quickly. And then, and then yeah, there, there's no commitment required. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my impression is that it seems to me like a combination of informed by classical sources plus Vic's like, sense of humor <laughs> right, right. and own kind of creative take on that stuff. Did you see Dave Perkins' tutorial that he wrote? He's another Dominions player, by the way. I, I don't. Uh, he wrote a tutorial for Dominions, or for, not for Dominions, for Solium Infernum, uh, which really you could see this guy totally gets Vic Davis's humor and the spirit of the game. Uh, oh, awesome! If you get a chance, just uh, I think you can Google Dave Perkins' Solium Infernum tutorial. Uh, oh, totally! Yeah, I'll look it up. Um, so, okay, there are board games that are built from nodes of storytelling. Uh, yeah. And I I think the game, because I haven't seen it, but I know you've talked about board games that you've prototyped. Uh, but there's a, there's a Call of Cthulhu board game where a lot of the gameplay is picking up cards and reading a little bit of story 
and it tells you at the end to roll a die or to do some gameplay mechanic thing. Uh, and it's basically feeding you tiny bits of narrative. They don't interrelate very well because you're drawing from a deck and you can't really tell what you're going to get. Uh, yeah. Have you played that? You mean Arkham Horror? Is that what yes, you're yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, I have played Arkham Horror. And did, um, is that similar to what you do when you make these prototypes of board games? Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's definitely um, uh, it is. I I the, the thing I'm sort of focused on in my own my own game that I've been working on is is having like you're saying like the, each card has a little bit of information on it and they don't necessarily relate and I'm sort of experimenting with. The card, the game is basically card driven. There's like over 400 cards. The one that I'm working on, and the but but there are sort of sort of thematic lines that run through them. So you'll find you know half a dozen cards that actually do sort of suggest connections to one another, mm-hmm. and when you encounter them in the course of the game, you as the player automatically draw those connections, um, and when they interact with all the other cards, the idea is that that like. An interesting story where unfold. Like if you if you find that the right the right kind of level of information to give somebody, and you give them like discrete chunks like in sequence, they will pull a story out of it instinctively. Like a person will will just sort of put those things together and make a story out of it because we are that we just do it naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I've been sort of fascinated with lately, and and would love to and and sort of and kind of aching to see more of in video games that kind of thing. But it's a little harder because. Unless you're working at the level of Vic or somebody who's doing a kind of more old school, um, you know, 2D art thing. Uh, when, when you're dealing with like full 3D and, and like, you know, Grand Theft Auto, it's like a whole world that's all fully realized. There's emergent narrative there because if you kill somebody, the cops will come after you. It's, it's a very kind of, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a narrow little frame of narrative. Right. Um, but because everything's in 3D and so kind of richly, um, realized there's not there's no room for kind of uh player imagination to come in there you know you can't really imagine doesn't give you any room to imagine what's happening between event a and event b because it's all happening (laughs) right you're there you're reloading your gun you're hopping in the car you're driving down the road um so i i kind of um board games have have sort of exist in this other space where you get like you know, you get you get a card and you look at the board and there's a map space and if your card, you know, if it's this Cthulhu game, if it's Arkham Horror, um, you know, it says you find a pistol in the library, right? Because you've got the pistol card and your piece is on the library space on the board. Mm-hmm. And then you as the player think, well, the librarian must have had that pistol under the front desk. Mm-hmm. You know, like like you get to like actually add pieces to that story yourself. And the great thing about a board game is that that the story comes people sitting around the table together kind of collaboratively fill in those gaps. Yeah. And you and it ends up being this funny, entertaining thing where you all kind of like make up the story together. So it's like not quite a, you know, hardcore RPG where you're it's you know, some one step away from improvisational theater. Um but you've got enough of the playing pieces and you've got really solid mechanics that, that sort of pull everything together where when you give people these kind of basically their little nudges or suggestions. Um They'll they'll participate and and fill in the gaps. I love any game that raises the question, why does a librarian have a gun under the desk? I mean that's right. okay by me. I love that. Right, exactly. Now, do you still uh, do any uh, actual D and D like any actual RPG or what's the tabletop role playing games? You still do. That? <laughs> 
Uh, I no, the closest. Well, last year I ran um, a Call of Cthulhu campaign for my students. That's you do. You do still play RPGs. I, I well, I do not currently. <laughs> you ran a game for your students, though. You you totally do. Yeah, I did last year. It was uh, a lot of fun. No, how how long? Too, go ahead, because I want to hear about this. It ended up being too what? Just too time consuming. Like I can't. Okay. I'm such a like control freak and a. Um, perfectionist that i couldn't just buy the published module and sit everybody down and say x y and z happens i actually had to like make sure props and pick a soundtrack and you know i just went the full nine yards and just tried to make it a complete narrative experience and um it just became like just uh you know i got a kid and a job And there's oh. a point at which it's actually great having this resource of these students. You know, they're all in their twenties and they got they're just looking for time to kill. And all the better if it's cheap entertainment. If I don't I don't have to pay ten bucks to go to a movie, if you'll do some <laughs> stupid role playing campaign, yeah, I'll sit down and play your stupid game. Um so that sort of morphed into every week or two we have like a board game night, um, where everybody gets everybody shows up at the school in one of the classrooms and um I, my collection is basically stored there, and then we just we just play board games, and that's sort of and we've been playtesting my game there too, so that's where I've been sort of being able to get that out. Do you respond to board games that are almost purely abstract? I think of a fellow named Rainer Kinesia, who his his main priority is gameplay, and then after the fact he'll add on an Egyptian skin yeah. or whatever. Uh, does that? Yeah. I guess you can call those Euro designs. Do you, do you respond to that stuff? You like very very minimally. Like I'll play one of those. I, it's not the kind of game I ever want to go back to play. You know, I'll play it and I'll have fun and I'll try to do my best to win, but I'll never feel the urge to actually go back to it. Um, you well, he's got a couple. Like, have you played his uh, Lord of the Rings, the the cooperative one? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. That, that's actually a really interesting example of a very very abstract design. And but if you know the source material, it's a pretty amazing um, kind of parallel narrative right. that can unfold in that game. If you know what it, what the, the game is referring to, which unfortunately you kind of need in order to really get the satisfaction out of that game, um, narrative satisfaction anyway. Um, and if you don't play it as like a problem-solving, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of people who play games will just basically figure out how to solve that game, like what decision you need to make at every juncture, what their quote-unquote right decision is. Which kind of completely kill the joy and whatever in playing that kind of game. Well, especially yeah, especially a co-op game like that. I mean, the, the co-op is only as good as its weakest link in a way. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing I love about that game in terms of the co-op stuff is that this meta narrative occurs where people who don't necessarily you know they, maybe they haven't played too many board games, maybe they're not totally focused on winning, maybe they're just sort of trying to figure it out and playing. The personalities of the players start to act in kind of like a fellowship way, and people will ah, say, like, "I don't yes. want to give you my card. <laughs> I need these cards to survive." <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> um, and in that sense, I absolutely love like I love that game because on a on a meta level, it works as well. You know, I never thought of it that way, Jason. That is that is great. I mean, it's where the, the meta level of the gameplay involves the personality of the people playing because because co op games can be really tricky in terms of. How do you deal with gameplay mechanics? Uh, like, like there was a game. I'm trying to think. There, there's one co-op game where you're not supposed to look at the contents, at, at, at each other's cards in your hand. Oh, well, Lord of the Rings does that. You okay. Actually, you can so, talk about it, right? You can talk about it, but you can't actually show each other cards. Oh, right, right, exactly. So, what's to stop someone from just saying, "Okay, <laughs> pretend I have card A, card B, and card C," uh, but that really does come down to different personalities. I mean, it's almost like it builds. That's emergent. It builds personality 
Yes. Those are a property. Those are properties of the gameplay that yes. Rainer Kinesia could not have foreseen, but he knows they'll be there. Exactly. Uh, so emergent properties come from that. You've now restored my faith in the co-op Lord of the Rings game. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't play it with people who are trying to solve it. <laughs> or if you do realize that's an aspect of the gameplay, that's going to be an emergent oh, yeah, great, property great. That you may not yes. like. <laughs> You're and, gonna and have then you like can a, be the guy that just says, says "I'm not going to do it your way." <laughs> right, you're you can have a Boromir amongst you. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> so and two games that I, I want to ask, and, and I know that Kinesia knows that. You know, right. he knows it, and that, the whole reason that rule exists—you can't show each other your cards—is so you have to talk to each other. Right. You know, and and then and then people who don't necessarily get it will will be like, "I don't want to give you my my fighting card because <laughs> I need it to survive this dice." <laughs> um. And I just think that's a very, it's a totally interesting and, 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 and thematically, you know, it plays in it's not just a co op it's like not, have you played Pandemic, another cooperative game? Yes, yes. Um there's almost none of that in Pandemic because Pandemic is purely problem solving. Yeah. Right. It's also not it's not your life that's at stake, it's the it's the life of the people the theory, you know, the idea of people on earth getting sick and dying, right? Yeah. So that's what you're trying to do. The great thing about Lord of the Rings is there's this greater evil you're fighting. It's that inevitable marching. You know, Sauron marches down the track towards you. People get scared. Do I hand off the ring or not? And um, um, and one of the really great things about it is that it actually the interaction of the players is it plays directly into the theme because it's a fellowship, and it's it's you're confronting problems together as a group, and you have to figure out how to resolve them as a group. Whereas Pandemic is more. It's almost like it's almost like. I mean, it's a map of the world. You're like totally zoomed out, and you're looking down, and it's like this exercise, and it's an efficiency exercise. Yeah, you're a scientist, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there's also this sense of you can have player personality almost in inverse proportion to how finicky the rules are, uh, <laughs> and and that's one of the great things about that Lord of the Rings co-op game is the the mechanics are abstract and general enough that there's room for player personality in there versus something like Arkham Horror where it's so many little numbers and die rolls that it kind of obscures any sense of personality of the different players. Yeah, you can have someone not wanting to, you know, give you the, the pistol because they want to use it or whatnot, but those so many of those details get in the way of personality, I think. Uh, yeah, so. no, I agree. That's Yeah, that's a great observation, definitely. So two games I want to ask you about. Yeah. Uh, uh, have, have you, because I, I think one of the brilliant, innovations in in narrative and i think of these as strategy games although some people wouldn't uh are the sims series and, and mm -hmm. have, you, have you played the sims 3 very much uh actually you know i have avoided picking up sims 3 i played a lot of sims 2 but i have not picked up sims 3. Uh, avoided just because you're busy with other things or because you yeah yeah them. i had to prioritize <laughs> did you see uh uh robin birkinshaw's Kevin Alice blog are you yes, yes. okay because that again that that right there that's that's emergent narrative you know, oh, totally. He he lifts out of the gameplay narrative, and he leaves the gameplay behind. You know, the, his Kevin Alice thing isn't about the gameplay of The Sims so much as a story about these two characters. Uh, it, it's their narrative divorced from the gameplay, and I love that The Sims supports that. Uh, oh yeah, no, it's great. It's totally amazing that way. So I think the thing that I've always found personally a little dissatisfying about The Sims is that I want a little more game. <laughs> well, it's so it's so reluctant to frustrate you i mean the, the, <laughs> the ea i think intentionally wants it to be so accessible and easy and they don't want to punish you or force you to make 
really hard choices and yeah, yeah. so it, it's so sandboxy isn't it rather than gamey uh, yeah when they you know when they they're those special little gadgets you can get that do things yep. like like money tree and stuff yeah as soon as i saw the money tree or whatever the <laughs> hell it was i was like okay this isn't for me i <laughs> i think i would rather like basically a simulation of what it really means to like you know, what if you are homeless and you're trying to to somehow get out of that situation in life? I, I'm I'd be interested in a game where that challenges that and it gives you kind of a more kind of realistic set of of uh, tools to work with. Well, and even more so. Go ahead. Sorry, go. Go. Well, I was gonna say even more so than money. You know, a game about death. You know, confronting you with your Sims' limited lifespan. Oh yeah, yeah. They add this this water cooler of youth or something that you could tip <laughs> up and you'll never die. Or I think in Sims Three. You just go into the options and you you toggle you know uh, characters never die or, or I think you just turn off aging or something. Uh, but they're so reluctant to like I know you are also a big fan of Iron Man gaming where the yeah, game yeah. forces you to not save and reload. It, it forces you to live with your decision. Uh, and The Sims Three just doesn't want to do that. And that's cool. I respect why they want to do that from a commercial perspective, but from a narrative perspective, I'm like, no, you guys force me to make hard choices. You know. Punish me, make me face my mortality. <laughs> or like, you get if you get me to care about this character, then when it dies, like I'll care about you know, like it's a kind of it's part of the story, and, and I'll when that character dies, I'll feel whatever, sad or happier. <laughs> and they <laughs> they want to let people opt out of that emotional investment, you know, that emotional impact, uh, and and so it kills some of the sense of investment for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. So the other one I want to ask you about, you mentioned uh, GTA. Uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 spawned all these wonderful open world games, yeah. but one of the problems with them is is uh, is narrative because, you know, there's only so many stories you can tell about, and then I ran over a pedestrian <laughs> game, and I shot the cops, and, uh, and I drove really fast around the city, and I ran into a mailbox. Those are great <laughs> stories, and we love those from action movies, but they get a little old. Yeah, right. there, there's a couple that have uh, done some really some new interesting things with this. And the first one that I think of, it's still within these narrow confines, but in a nice science fiction perspective, and it breaks open some of the rules. It's a little bit more generous. It reminds me of XCOM with its destructibility. Did you see Red Faction Guerrilla? Yeah, yeah. So they don't push storytelling much because they don't really have the chops, I think. But I love the way that having breaking buildings adds to that sense of chaos and those action set pieces you can do. Oh yeah, totally. And in more games, I mean that there there was in a way no going back once I sort of saw that. Like I still <laughs> yeah. like GTA, but by golly, you just I, I have to be able to break a building now. <laughs> That's just mandatory. And the great thing about that about Red Faction was, um, well, you still get these you know there are these narrative kind of each 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 region or whatever is like an open. You can sort of finish it any way you want in whatever order. Yeah. I guess there is a certain linear progression to the missions that the the rebels give you, but. And then there's like this bottleneck where you have to do the final mission before you move on to the next. But um, within that, especially in a given set piece, like, okay, you have to take out this base. Here you are. <laughs> and you can just go about that however you want. Yep. You know, it's like, it's all destructible. So you can decide how you want to take it down or, you know, what order you need to do things, which guards you need to take out first. And I love that. You know, here's the stage. We set the stage for you. Here's all the actors moving around. Um, and here's a gun. <laughs> How are you going to tackle it? And that, you know, in a, in a in a smaller kind of tighter, more confined setting, it still it still hits that 
that for me that that satisfaction of how is this story going to play out and what are the decisions I'm going to make to to get it to play out the way that I want. Right. And in GTA, they even when they pretend to do that, you know they're using the level geometry to sort of set parameters. Like you have to go yeah. here, then here, then here. And Red Faction Guerrilla does not have that luxury, and it knows it. Uh, and I know it, and I appreciate that we both know it, and that they're <laughs> letting me lose to to play. I like the way you put it as a stage. Uh, it's it's a stage, and it's populated with actors and props, but there's no script, and I, yeah, that's exactly. just a, it's a beautiful thing for them to do. Yeah, totally right. So, so a step backwards from that, but because it goes to someplace completely new, we all know, you know, even the Mars in Red Faction Guerrilla, totally influenced by Paul Verhoeven and Total Recall, like a lot of that's very familiar. Yeah. This is an open world game that finally goes to someplace new. And to me, what's emergent about it is these are new actors. I don't understand these people or who they are or where they come from. They're new and weird to me and different. Uh, did, did you play Brutal Legend? I have not played Brutal Legend. So because we all know, you know, you shoot a pedestrian, the cops are going to come, they're going to get a cop car, and they're going to chase you. That's sort of the ecology of a city. And that's right. very familiar to us, and we know that. Brutal Legend doesn't have to play by those rules. It has its own rules and its own population, its own ecology, and it is an open world game. As you're driving around in the world of Brutal Legend, battles can unfold that have nothing to do with you. <laughs> and it's great seeing this uh, this ecology that's unlike anything you've ever seen. Uh, I, and I just... That's pure narrative right there. Like That's Tim Schafer, a story straight out of his head, and he just lets it unfold different ways in this open world. It's, it's got much more traditional gameplay with the missions and whatnot. Uh, but I really appreciated going to a new place where those GTA city-based rules don't apply anymore. Oh, yeah, that's great. So, I'm looking forward to playing it someday. Uh, I don't so have yeah, a console right now. Well, you don't have a console, and your, your gaming time is going to be severely impacted uh, yes. in, in the, cu- the coming days. Uh, wait a minute, you don't have a console? I have, actually, I'm actually, uh, I went in Habsies on a, on a 360 with Ed Brubaker, the guy that wrote The Fall. Okay. And, <laughs> and he, he ended up with it? it? He ended up with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not very fair. Did you guys flip a coin, or how come he ended up with the 360? Well, he's got this whole basement. He's got like a nine-foot-wide digital screen, and, you know, it's it was the right place for the 360. Okay. You know? Me, I would just be playing it on some crappy little color TV. <laughs> um, so, but it's actually for the better because there's no, you know, between. I mean, there's there's so much for me to play on the PC that, um, and I just got. Um, I, I do have a DS, and I just got the Might and Magic Clash of Heroes for the DS. So, that's but, kind of sucking up a lot of spare time too right now. Now, how is that? So you're you're liking that because I'm I'm a little the the puzzle aspect of that. I, I I'm not quite I haven't quite wrapped my head around. A lot it's of- pretty great. It's kind of it's brilliant. It's actually a brilliant little puzzle design. Um, it doesn't have you know any of the narrative qualities that we're talking about here because it's pretty just straightforward. Um, um, but it also doesn't have that satisfaction that Puzzle Quest had, where you could actually kind of pick and choose your level up stuff. Right. You know, when you level up, it's it's more of that JRPG. The little bar goes up. You're level five. Your hit points go up by two points. <laughs> right. Um, which is but but I find the puzzle. Um, once I got my head around it, I found I found it really satisfying. Can you um, look at the table now and sort of anticipate? Okay, I need to set up defenders here and attack here. Like you're 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 looking at it that way. Yeah, I, I like just figuring out how the linking and the fusing works, which was a little hard at first. But yeah, yeah, I can figure out how to set up 
proper defenses and stuff. I think I'm probably, I think I'm about halfway through it, and I'm, I think I'm about to that point I described earlier where once you get it, you kind of don't get it anymore. <laughs> You're about to be done with it. <laughs> I think, I'm, yeah, I think unfortunately I'm about, I'm about to be done with it. Uh, all right, well, good, good. Uh, and what is what is work going like on Berlin? I know that a lot of people who know of you as a comic book person. So are the first two, it's a trilogy, the first two are done? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, the second one came out last fall. And is um, there a, is there an ETA for the third one? <laughs> Do you get asked uh, that, by the way? I'll every, be your... time I, every time I try to set a deadline, it's it's always, you know, a bad idea. My German publisher, who's the person I'm actually most beholden to, the, the people who are doing it in Germany, um, I've told them that uh, it'll be done in three years. Um, so that's when I have to get it done. And right now I'm in the... I'm doing this last volume all in one chunk, like like before I did a chapter at a time, and this last 200 pages I'm doing all at once. So right now I'm in the kind of writing and editing stages of that, and I'm going to start drawing uh, early next year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Good. It's a time-consuming process. <laughs> uh, well, now I don't know if you know this, but I'm about to ask you a completely random question that has <laughs> nothing to do with anything we've talked about. Uh However, this one I like, and I, I this is one, a lot of the other random questions that I've had, like there was one about the Loch Ness Monster, I honestly couldn't care less about the answer. I mean, it's something fine to talk about, but this is one I'm real curious what people will say. Uh, so you're actually getting a good random question. <laughs> and, and not, uh, Okay, you ready for this, Jason? Sure. What is something that you remember about your first teacher? She had... Long, beautiful, curly black hair. Do you remember her name? Mrs. Lem. Lem. L e m, I think. Was I she think. Polish? Is that because I think of Stanislaw Lem when I hear that name? Oh, that's a good question. You know, in retrospect, I have no, I haven't thought about her in. <laughs> and it was this a long time? Kindergarten, first grade? Like, how do you do? You even remember? Or you just remember? You know, she's she's probably she's not literally my first teacher, but she's the first person, the first teacher that came to mind, and she um was I believe first grade for me. Um, I, yeah, I had a total crush on her. Oh, your first um, love too. <laughs> I, I guess so, probably. <laughs> Thanks, Tom, for bringing that up. (laughs) Uh, And do you remember anything? Because I I remember the name of my first teacher, but couldn't tell you anything else about her. Uh, It wasn't until... The the first teacher that made an impact on me, I think in third grade, I remember having a male teacher, and I I grew up with a a single mother, so that was a a, a big deal for me, is to have this... This male role model, this sort of father figure, and his name. Here was another thing, Jason. I constantly got picked on my last name being Chick for my name. So this teacher in third grade, here was this this father figure. He was this really cool dude. He had a worse name than me. So for a year, I got a break from having my name being made fun of. His name was Mr. Beans. Uh, but he was a dude and I was like, wow, you know, a a male teacher. Uh, but my first teacher was Mrs. Tremelling. I remember her name, but I don't remember the first thing about like what she looked like or what she sounded like. And I don't remember I had a crush on her or what she taught me or. Well, you don't even remember what she looked like. That's I don't. I just remember the name for some reason. I don't remember a lot of stuff about my childhood. I'm constantly amazed that people like when people tell stories about being a child or their childhood. I'm just amazed at that, and I respect that, and that is an awesome ability because I sure don't have that. Uh, I've, I remember bits and pieces of my childhood, but I couldn't tell you if they're things that I actually remember or that my sister told me or something. It's all uh, just... Yeah, just I'm sort of the same way. 
Yeah. Like I can't. My daughter, when we go to, when, we, when my daughter goes to bed at night, she says, tell me a story about when you were a little boy. And I like just struggle. <laughs> and you and fake I just, it, I bet. <laughs> yeah, I totally fake it. I end up telling her stories about how our humidifier used to get up and walk outside and it was just making stuff up as I go. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess if you don't have a vivid memory, it, it helps to be at least instead creative. <laughs> right, right. Or you look at the humidifier in the corner of her room and say, okay, I had a humidifier when I was a kid. <laughs> well, Jason, I, I really appreciate you talking to me. It was awesome to get to talk to you again after meeting you. I guess that was – so I, I don't know if you remember. We went and saw a crappy movie too. Yeah, it? Monkey Bone. You do remember. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you're you're one of those guys that I met, and I remember thinking, "Dang, I wish he lived in L.A. That'd be awesome to hang out with him." So and you actually sent up a friend of yours who moved to Seattle. Actually, ended up playing board games with us. I can't remember. His oh, name. maybe my friend Jules. Did he maybe yeah. show up? It might have been Jules. Might have been Jules. Yeah, that was that was great. And then who who else came to that movie? Was it was it Christian? Who came yeah. So my friend Christian, who I do a, a movie podcast with now, and Christian's a, a close friend of mine here in L.A. He came he came to the comic store with me. Right. Uh, okay. Because here's a weird thing. Like, I love meeting people from quarter to three, and sometimes it's, you know, you, you want to, like, buffer friend there. Because, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, and most of the time, you know what? It works out fine. I, I've met some really awesome people on quarter to three who I'm more than happy to hang out with one-on-one. But just in case, you know, I brought Christian. You never know. And, and Christian, he, he can be such a dork. At the store, he made, like, he thinks he's being funny, and he is to me because we know each other. But we show up at the comic store. And he, I think, loudly asks the proprietor, where are the Garfield comics? Which, I was just like, Christian, you're being a dork. What? I mean, he, it's it's kind of like you have that friend who embarrasses you, doesn't know any better. And so that, that's what I remember about taking Christian to, to the comic book store. That's uh, great. Oh, and actually, oh gosh, now I remembered. I, I was writing these short fiction series called Shoot Club back then. Yes. And, and they featured this imaginary character named Trevor. And I recall, yes. I'm pretty sure you took me aside and you pointed at Christian. You said, is that, is that Trevor? <laughs> yeah, I, I th- I'm afraid I was a little clueless. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. Because I sort of took that as a compliment, this idea that I'd created this fictional character and I never specified that he was fictional, but that someone could believe that was actually a real person. I knew I was kind of flattered that you asked that. So. Yeah, no, it was great. Cause I loved those columns and I was like, wow, this is such a great way to write about games. And like, he has this funny, weird friend and that's so great. <laughs> and I hadn't seen fight club. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so got a, get the reference you know so it, it is it is pretty obscure but anyway i got a lot of mileage out of teasing christian about the fact that someone thought he was uh trevor <laughs> oh good good that'll get him back for the garfield comment well congratulations in advance uh on your coming child that's awesome Thank news you. um and if yeah. you ever get sick of vermont move back to los angeles and 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 we can hang out that would be awesome <laughs> all right thanks. thank you thank you very much so for everyone listening uh there will be a post in everything else uh, titled, What's Something You Remember About Your First Teacher? If you post in this thread using a, a complicated thing I'm about to explain, you can win a free game. Uh, in the free game, I have to look and see what I've got in the other room. I don't know offhand what the free game will be. It'll be announced in the thread. But here's what you have to do to qualify. When you're talking about your first teacher, you need to mention their name. And immediately preceding their name, use a word that begins with that letter. So, for instance, uh, Jason, you mentioned Mrs. Lem. You would have to, before Mrs. Lem, use a word that begins with an L. Like, uh, I liked Mrs. Lem's blah, 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 penchant for teaching, something like that. Or, in my case, Mrs. Tremelling. Uh, I remember 
telling Mrs. Tremelling that I'd hurt myself on the playground. You know, I have to begin with that letter, the, the, the first letter of the teacher's name. So if you can, that's a little bit obtuse, but I want to keep from someone accidentally winning the free game. Uh, if you post in the thread using those rules, you're eligible for a free game. Uh, so there you go. Uh, next week, we have Forge Forsaken, who I don't think I know his real name, and I'm not sure if he'll be willing to tell us, but uh, he'll be joining us next week to talk about Chrome Hounds. Did, did you play that by any chance, Jason? That was, was that a 360 game? It was a 360 mech game where you built your own mech. It was a, Oh, yeah, I remember you guys talking about it. No, I didn't get a chance to play it. Uh, well, it, we'll, we'll probably be talking about like why mech games are, are, are dead. They have not fared <laughs> So. All right, well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today, Jason. I'm sorry we, we went so long, but uh, you've been great to talk to, and uh, we'll see you around on the forum. Thanks, Tom. Or 